From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Michael Griffin. Today, I'm talking with local author Christine Langley Mahler, author of the new essay collection, A Calendar is a Snakeskin. I think that nonfiction is often the, the way we see the world, which is sometimes with our eyes and then sometimes with our hearts. And so when you're writing it, to try to be pulling both together and kind of constantly questioning which, which is the more authentic truth, isn't it both? Isn't the way, the way we perceive something as real as the way that we actually did experience it? And what's the, how do we toggle between the two then when you're presented with one version of facts and yet here's another version of facts that you also know to be true? I, to me, that tension is where the heart lies, and that's what I love trying to get at. We're talking about literature as comfort, the art of memoir, and how to actually publish a book. Stay tuned for our conversation after this break. Tom Noblock here. I've been exploring culture of all kinds for the past few years, and I keep coming back to the same conclusion. Everything we do is filtered through entertainment. If it's not entertaining, nobody's paying attention. So to understand the world, you have to not only look at your screen, but comprehend what's on it. This is the focus of my new show, The Entertainment. Each week, I'll be exploring an element of our culture through film, television, music, art, and more. Listen this fall on Omaha Public Radio or on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Michael Griffin. Christine Langley Mahler is a local author who grew up all around the country. The lack of a permanent home in her childhood informs much of her current writing. In her most recent book, A Calendar is a Snakeskin, Mahler explores identity, motherhood, and the past, present, and future. A Calendar is a Snakeskin is available wherever you get books on October 31st. Here is my conversation with Christine Langley Mahler. When I was reading the bio, uh, it said that you were a cancer and a certified type A oldest daughter. And as the youngest sibling, I could understand the energy that meant. (laughs) (laughs) So who are you? Where are you? Like, where'd you grow up? Oh, well, I kind of grew up all over. Yeah, I am the oldest of three, uh, the oldest daughter and the oldest of my three siblings. And I kind of grew up all across the country. So I was, my dad was a grad student when I was born. And so we were living in Indiana when I was, when I was born. <laughs> and then my family moved for his first job to Oregon, where I lived for seven years for basically my elementary school years. And then we moved to North Carolina for his next job, where I lived for all of middle school. And then we moved back to Indiana, although to a totally different town where I went to high school. So okay. like, I got both coasts and the Midwest. <laughs> wow, that's the American experience. Right, you, <laughs> you know, I, I always tell people like, university professors are pretty similar when to like, you know, people who have families in the services, like you're kind of mm. always moving. <laughs> yeah, I guess fairly nomadic, for sure. Mm-hmm. So when you were growing up in all these different places, um, were you always interested in literature or writing? You know, I was always a reader. I would say I wasn't necessarily a writer, but I was a big reader. I was like one of those kids who kind of was constantly doing it. I always had books around. It was, I mean, I would get my favorites and I would read them like, you know, 15 times. What were some of your favorites? Um, So as a kid, I mean, I loved the Babysitter's Club books, which, you know, it's kind Uh of funny. I mean, I don't know, that appeals to a lot of kids. But in middle school, after we'd moved to North Carolina, I had no frame of reference for the South. And so... I read Gone with the Wind like 15 Uh times, followed by Scarlet, which is seldom talked about. It's the sequel, which came out in about 1993 or 94, which was when we'd moved there. And so it was really big culturally at the time because everyone was like, oh, what's the sequel? And I was like, oh, I don't know. What is this book? So I went back and forth. And so while I was trying to understand what the South was, you know, as a this was a pre-internet time. So it's important (laughs) to understand you only knew it if you lived in it. Um, I just kept reading it over and over and trying to make sense of it with where I was. Did you find that you were able to interpret the real world and the literature world equally? Or is there an ebb and flow of more real, like reading less, experiencing more that you interpret and vice versa when you're 
are reading more, you're out here less often? You know, that's a really good question. And I think that, you know, the older I've gotten, the more important it is to really not be just stuck in a book and to be, it, it's kind of the same experience now that I'm a writer, you know, you can't just sit and process your own things forever. You have to be mm -hmm. out in the world experiencing your actual life, which is more than just your memories that you're writing about. Mm -hmm. And so I think reading kind of is the same way. It's, it's important to read about a space, but also it's important to experience it uh, yourself. Mm. Okay. So when you look back, um, do you find that what you read through literature had a comparable impact on your experience as what you were experiencing in real life? Very much, yeah. I mean, I, I think so because it was the filter through which I saw a lot of things, mm. things that I didn't understand or that I hadn't experienced myself. It was a, here was somebody who had processed it. So I could read about that and be like, oh, okay, whether it was authentic to my experience mm. or even, you know, if it was not, <laughs> I was reading fiction primarily and, you know, life is nonfiction with, you know, a good mix of fiction put in there. But, um, yeah, I, th I think that, um, yeah, f f filtering both through each other, uh, but definitely having it as a framework. Mm. Yeah, a framework that can often catalyze some form of processing. For sure, yeah. That's, that's beautiful, that's cool. Um, and I often think about how it can be difficult to have introspection. You know, like it's one thing to have information and ideas, but how does that manifest and synthesize with your soul and then change your worldview, you know? And so when you talk about worldview, you know, you have reading where you're kind of absorbing worldviews of others, and then you kind of have the other side of the coin where you have the writing. So mm -hmm. when did you start getting involved more with writing and what motivated you to? Um, I think, honestly, you know, speaking of that move to North Carolina, I mean, that was kind of, you know, it's it was a pivotal age. I mean, I moved, I was, you know, 10 going in, basically going into middle school. I had fifth grade and then middle school. And I was trying to process the change of what it had been like, you know, to have had one life and then to be in another. And I came back to that then when I was in high school and we had left then North Carolina. And I needed to write to be able to kind of look at my experiences on mm. the page because I had my memories, but then I also had how I felt about them. And I think I had mm. taken a lot of those experiences as I was having them and I was just storing them away going, I will deal with this later. I don't know how to process this. I'll deal with it later. And so writing became a way to kind of um, splay it out, look at it for what it was and think about how I felt and how I wanted to feel about it too. Mm. Sounds like it was a journey towards truth. Yes, I would say that is, I feel like the life of a memoirist constantly <laughs> trying to journey toward truth. That's a perfect way to put it. Sounds like a band name, like, right? a, like a hair metal band <laughs> in the 80s. <laughs> okay, and, and so I think that is a, that's really interesting when you talk about, you know, how things can catalyze emotional processing. And so when you are writing based off of your experiences, how do you, do you, are you mindful of healthy approaches to that? For instance, I like stand-up comedy and I like doing stand-up comedy. And sometimes I have to remind myself that if I make a joke making fun of myself or my trauma, I should process that first mm -hmm. before trying mm -hmm. to make art. And so is that a part of your process at all or how do you balance the healthy component. Oh, that, uh, yeah, that's that's good, and I, I feel like it's important too because when I'm writing, you know, a, as a again as a memoirist, which means I'm primarily looking at my own experiences. Nobody has experiences in a vacuum, and I understand I'm always writing about other people to some extent. I try to center my understanding of it at the time while not trying to inhabit their experiences during it, but I am aware that I'm still describing something that other people lived through with me, and so. Kind of like the rule I have for myself is to try to be as critical on myself and as and to presume as much goodness from them <laughs> when mm. looking at it. Because if I'm willing to kind of be as mean to myself as I can be, I can come back to it later and give myself some more grace and be like, okay, yeah, 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 you, you know. Mm. I mean, no, nobody, mm. I, I think nobody sets out to write a nonfiction book making themselves the hero because no one wants to read about somebody calling themselves the hero <laughs> of anything. You, But, you know, if I can talk about other people um, who, were, who were part of it by being kindest to them first and then trying to layer on more complex emotions later, that, then I think I'm being as 
um, judicious <laughs> as I can be. <laughs> Where do you find inspiration now? Now, I mean, you know, <laughs> that's a good question. Probably trying to pay attention to the life that I'm living right now. A, a mm. lot of the the work that's coming out of me recently are experiences that were, you know, 20 years ago. I have about a 20 year window, which is why this book, um, the one we're gonna talk about later, <laughs> um, it's kind of an anomaly for me because it really happened um, in 2020. And mm. I didn't think I would have processed through that fast enough to be able to see it for what it was. And yet, while it was occurring, I was aware something seismic was happening and I needed to pay attention mm -hmm. to it. So it kind of taught, the experience of writing it taught me to, to pay greater attention to what's happening in my life now. And so even though I'm not necessarily processing it into essays or books right now, I am noting what I want to remember about right now and knowing that later I'll be able to come back to that and see it in a different light. <laughs> How do you note that? <laughs> I think it can be so tricky. We have so much information all the time. Mm -hmm. How can we document ideas so that they can turn into, I don't want to say a product, but how, how to turn ideas into art going forward? Mm -hmm. Well, I was never a journaler growing up for one mm. thing. I, I kept a diary for like one year. It got stolen by <laughs> one of my friends. And then after that, I stopped journaling for years and years and years. And I've only recently started, I mean, within the past five years, started journaling again. Part of it has been recording my dreams in the morning. I read something somewhere from, that somebody suggested doing that. And I thought, you know, I do have those dreams and they dissipate so quickly. So I started writing those. And that's one way of putting a form of your subconscious down because one mm. way or another your subconscious is speaking to you in your dreams and you might not know what it is when you're doing it and you might not know what it is for a long time later but sometimes you can come back and look at the notes you left for yourself and be like ah I see what I was trying to tell myself four years ago but I get it so you mm. know documenting in some way some people I know take photos and like, you know, post them on Instagram or, you know, people are putting other things on social media in one way or another. However, you're choosing to document your life, whether it's digitally for the world to see in some way, or if you're just making a list for yourself, if you're doing um, this thing I did when I was like in high school, because we saw it on Oprah about making the, the <laughs> list of eight things that made you happy that day. I look back at that. I kept it my senior year of high school. I mean, the list is kind of comical because I definitely thought I was being very clever with some of the things I was listing, like strawberries, they make me happy today. Isn't that weird and quirky? <laughs> but to, to be able to look at that now and I'm like, I have an insight into who I was then because mm. I bothered to put it down somehow. Mm. And so, absolutely, yeah, I mean, absolutely. everyone can document in their own way, but I think documenting is how we can kind of just fix a little part of ourselves in, in, in history that we can look at later to create art out of. Two things, number one, thanks Oprah, doing <laughs> your magic. Uh, and number two, I think that really resonates with me because, you know, we do live in a fearful time in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. And so there's this urge that the solutions have to be immediate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we need immediate solutions in order to have grace or mm -hmm. peace. And so I think just the practice of letting, letting things resonate over time. You can't build a flower in a day. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's deep. <laughs> that's great. I, I like, yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it because yeah, I think the longer that something sits and mellows, the more we come back to it changed too. Mm. And and that affects our, I don't know, our understanding of ourselves or of the situation. And yeah, th there's the immediacy of needing to to put it down, but there's also the I don't know, for me it's the joy of rediscovering that I had once marked this. <laughs> this thing that could have slipped into like the back channels of memory, but I made yeah. some, one little note somewhere that's that little portal in. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Christine Langley Mahler about her new book, A Calendar is a Snakeskin, which will be available wherever you get books on October 31st. Join the conversation on social media. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on an upcoming show. Well, let's talk about your newest work, A Calendar is a Snakeskin, released on Halloween. 
Yes. Uh, firstly, how did you come across that title? Uh, <laughs> you know, like I joked about that title on Twitter. At the, I said I'm going to write a book. I like I was when I was writing the essays. I was like, I'm going to call this a calendar is a snakeskin, and who's going to stop me? And because it sounded kind of ridiculous, but honestly. I, you know, the book is about a lot of slipping out of, like, shedding the old skin and moving into the new. And it follows a near year in my life from um, July of 2019 or July of 20, 2020 through June of 2021. So it was almost, it was eclipse to eclipse. And I just was thinking about how that was a year, basically a calendar's worth. That was a snakeskin that we needed to, mm -hmm. that I needed to shed. And frankly, mm -hmm. don't isn't that what we all do every year? Whether it's you know July to June or January to December. I mean, it's a it's a self that we shed, and so that that is a, a way of thinking about it. With that time period, um, did you plan in advance? between that time interval of a year? Or was it because the world <laughs> shut down? Or? You know, no, like I couldn't, I didn't even see this this period coming. It, it ah. came at me <laughs> and I was documenting during it. So it kind of begins during a month that my family had, we had planned to spend in New Mexico and we'd planned it before everything shut down in 2020. Like we'd booked the Airbnb for a month oh, back in like December, 2019. <laughs> so uh, we had no idea. And and frankly, I mean, you know, while everybody was in shutdown, I guess the worst thing wouldn't be spending a whole month sequestered in New Mexico. So it sounded good. So we went there and it was a time period where a lot of things started to happen for me. Big things, you know, they followed, they started really with an eclipse. It started with a bear that I saw in a canyon that reminded me of a dream that I had had mm. consistently over and over for 19 years. And I started looking at straw. I like every, all these symbols and meanings kept coming together at me during that time period. And, you know, like with anything, you kind of have to call an end to, to, to the period you're observing. And I saw that in the arc of this, what, what I, what the symbols were leading me toward that it did need to end with a shedding of the person I had been before, um, and moving toward a future that I had been kind of unsure was was for me, which happened to be leaving a job that I had had for 17 years. Mm. So when I was kind of reading about it, uh, the Bermuda Triangle of structure, creation and isolation. Mm. Are those themes that drive narratives expressed in your experiences in this text? Yeah, I feel like they were, they're all, <laughs> they all kind of come together and are necessary for, for creativity. I mean, I really love working with structures, first of all, like essay structures. I mean, th this book is structured into three essays, so <laughs> there you have it. But otherwise, I, I do like playing with the structure of a piece and thinking about how it, how the structure can best mimic what's happening inside of it. Isolation, I mean, yes, you, you have to be able to retreat from, from your normal life to be able to process what's happening. And then that's where the creation comes through. And I, I know I like the idea of a Bermuda Triangle requiring all three. It is kind of a pit mm. you get lost in. It's, mm. you know, wh whether it's a pit for a couple of hours because that's what you're able to squeeze off to write, or if you're able to, you know, sit in sit in the bathroom texting on your phone to yourself so you come back to it. One way or another, it requires that isolation and some form of structure for the creation to come out. With so much of this being observational um, as a memoir, how did you go about collecting the observations, I guess. Mm -hmm. For instance, did you say, today I want to be try to be inspired by one thing I see, or was it just organically with a few cases that impacted you over the course of the year? So the first essay in the book is called Ghost Watch, and the sections in it, while they're not in the order that I wrote them in, I was reading a book uh, by Jenny Boulay called Betwixt and Between, and after I would finish a chapter, I would just journal response to what it was making me think about and what it was bringing up. And so a lot, all of those sections in there came from that. So in a sense, I was starting with that structure. It was kind of an impetus to come back and write because I was feeling very inspired while reading it. And I was, I didn't want to just hold the inspiration in and wait to see what happened. I wanted to immediately be pushing that back out and see what was happening. So I finished that essay first and I really kind of wrote that first. The other ones, 
I was, I, I, it's like you have, sometimes I think you get that feeling where you're living through a period you're going to want to remember because big things are happening. And so I was trying to just pay attention to what kept appearing and to note down what felt like it might be significant. Now, not everything was significant, significant and definitely not everything made it into that book, but um, it was just that preternatural feeling that I needed to be aware and that I needed to be paying attention. I mean, the, the, mm. I talk about the snakes in there a lot. I just kept seeing snakes. And every time I would see one, which, you know, I came to see as a symbol of transformation, reminding me I needed to change. You need to grow. You need to shed something. It was weird because, you know, in Omaha, we don't necessarily get that many snakes. So, <laughs> like, it made sense seeing them in New Mexico. But then when I started seeing them here, too, it was like, why do I see that? And so when I would see one, I would think, what – what was I not paying attention to? How am I not seeing this right? And I would review mm. kind of what had been going on and then try to journal about it and write it down and pay attention to it. Mm. That makes sense, uh, especially the idea of seeing something correctly. And mm -hmm. with that kind of in mind, do you ever find social media or tech um, creating barriers to processing what you're observing in your space? Oh, for sure. It's so easy to get distracted. <laughs> how, do you, how do you navigate that? <laughs> I, well, I, I took a workshop once, um, and the workshop leader said to lean into the things that you're distracted by and note hmm. what you're looking up and why. You know, there's paying, they're scrolling through social media, sure, but what are you stopping at? Why are you stopping at that? Because it's revealing something about yourself that, you know, is worthy of note. And so, you know, like harnessing that. What what rabbit holes are you going down? And why are you following that link as opposed to looking up this next? Just it's to, to see it less as a time waster instead as another portal. Mm. As a Wikipedia <laughs> lover, that <laughs> I feel that. I can say something to my mom and she calls me a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> We've spoken about kind of the foundation to where you were as a person while writing a calendar as a snakeskin and also kind of the foundation of themes that we see without it. But let's take a step back and just how did you create a book or how do people mm. go from witnessing something, having an idea, you know, I know a fair ish amount about how you make music and distribute it. But what are those conversations like with literature? Uh, well, I've got two like hats I can put on here. There's the writer hat, which I've had, <laughs> but I'm also a small press publisher. Now, I didn't publish this oh. book, but I really I know how the sausage gets made on the other end, for one thing. <laughs> so I knew that I needed to, when, once I'd written a manuscript, you know, you've got to look for a press, which for, I, I prefer small presses, being a small press publisher <laughs> myself. Um, You've got to find a press that shares a vision and is publishing work that you feel like your book is in conversation with, whether it's thematically or with the authors or someone who's just uh, that you would feel proud to be associated with, not just because it's big names, but because it, it makes sense. And so I had met the director of Autofocus who published this book um, at AWP, which is a national conference that happens every year. This coming up in 2024, it's going to be in Kansas City. It's as close to Omaha mm. as it's ever been <laughs> in the, uh, a long time. So any writers out there, definitely think about coming down there. I think it's the first week of February 2024. But anyway, so I was at AWP and I met the director of Autofocus and he said that, you know, if I ever had anything, I should think of sending something to him. And I really admired the work they were doing. It's all nonfiction books, all smaller books too. And this was such a weird little manuscript. I mean, it's much shorter than you will see a lot of nonfiction books being. And I appreciated that he could see the value in people who wrote manuscripts, that they didn't just pad it with enough pages so that it hit some, you know, industry standard, but that you knew when the work was done. And he knew when the work was mm. done. And he, they, they took the book, and I actually worked then with an editor there named uh, Lena Crown on finalizing its final form and actually ended up adding, like, I don't know, 5,000 more words to it, but nevertheless. So yeah, people who are wondering like how you take the manuscript, the, the main thing to do when, when you feel like you're really done writing is to take a good look at the literary landscape and say, okay, where do I think my book could fit? Not where is my like dream that's gonna get me the most money for it to fit, because there are so many pitfalls with that. Instead, it's looking at who will love your book and you and treat you with respect for what you're putting out. Okay, and so just to break down a few of these terms for those not in the know, 
When we say small press, does that mean what? What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> so um, it can well, it can mean a lot of different things. There are bigger small presses like Gray Wolf out of Minneapolis or uh, Coffee House Press out, also out of Minneapolis, Hub City Press out of South Carolina. Basically, it's one of the not big five out of New York. <laughs> um, and so there, those are there are bigger small presses, and then there are the ones that are kind of run by smaller teams. I mean, the press that I run, which is called Split Lip Press, has we have a team of about seven of us and we're spread all across the country. And so um, we are not supported by a university. We're not supported by like a foundation. We are running it ourselves. And so that's more typical of what you'll see from a small press. Of course, university presses sometimes get lumped together with small presses, that, which are you know, also still not big five. I mean, <laughs> mm. the, so there's a, it, there's a host of different ways, but small presses, what you'll usually get will be more focused attention actually than you'll get at a big five because they don't put out as many books per year and they're doing it usually because they really believe in the literature not because of trying to meet some financial bottom line that also means most of the people in the press are volunteers and mm. so everybody is being paid a small amount but they're doing it because it's important to bring this sort of literature to to the world mm. okay so if there is a hypothetical person that wanted to write a book Mm -hmm. The chronological steps would be they're inspired, they start writing it, they have a manuscript, and then how would they go about finding different types of small presses? Just Googling small presses oh. in Omaha, Nebraska? <laughs> or Well, that'd be, that would be one way. <laughs> <laughs> You'll run right into split lip. No. Um, well, I would have said before now that it, a great way to find them is to get on lit Twitter. But, you know, Twitter is really dying now. And it, that's such a weird, strange place to be. I mean, some people might be able to find them also looking through Submittable, which is a submissions software where they'll list calls for submissions, calls for book submissions that are regularly happening. And that's a way to see, okay, what are some names of presses? What kind of books are they looking for right now? Uh, Poets and Writers is a really good resource. It's a magazine that comes out monthly and there's always calls for submissions in there. Plus, a big thing is to take a look at where the books that you like have been published and where did those mm. authors, if they're from, if they're with a bigger press, where did they possibly publish earlier work with too? Because often, um, yeah, there's breakout people who come out on big five presses, but a lot of people start with smaller presses before moving up. And so seeing like, hmm, okay, where were they first? I do like their work and I think that that might be a good one to look up. Mm. And that goes back to the conversation of having insight into what you're searching for online. Mm -hmm. Do you have other books available as well? I do. I have uh, one book that came out the year before this in October 2022 called Curing Season, and that came out with West Virginia University Press. And that was uh, very much a learning experience. It helped me be a much better director of my own press because I was you know, helping people through the selection process and the publication process of books, but then doing it on the flip side as an author myself, it helped me answer a lot more questions, be a lot more, you know, forward with giving a lot of information, thinking I would have wanted this earlier if I could have had it. Let me see how I can give this to my authors. I'm talking with Christine Langley-Mahler about her book, A Calendar is a Snakeskin. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. This is Elaine Wells. I'm a mental health therapist, and I recently had a seizure in April, and it was very, very costly for my insurance company to pay for all the tests, sending me to the hospital in an ambulance, uh, and I was not allowed to drive for 90, 90 days. So it was a very upsetting situation, even though for me it was painless. I can't even imagine what it would be like to have a child who had seizures regularly. And so I think it's very important that we legalize marijuana for medical use. However, on the other hand, I see a lot of young people abusing marijuana. They're high all the time. They're demotivated. Uh, and I, I don't see them making um, a lot of contribution to society. So I'm very much opposed to the recreational use of marijuana for most people. So I think we, we have to be using common sense 
to allow people who need this for medical purposes to have it, but to be more cautious about recreational use. Thank you. Goodbye. If you're enjoying the type of content you get here at Riverside Chats, conversations that go in-depth on art, politics, and everything in between, please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can find a link in the show notes that allows you to give a recurring or single amount, whatever you're comfortable with, whatever you think the show is worth, which maybe is nothing. In which case, ouch, if you think this is a valuable part of your week, then we would appreciate the support so we can continue to give you the quality that you came here for in the first place. Thank you for considering supporting Riverside Chats and enjoy the show. I was just calling to voice my opinion about the legalization of medical marijuana and just wanted to say that this is something that's for the good of the people. And uh, people have passed it before and want this. And our elected politicians should be doing the will of the people and uh, not the will of uh, party politics. Thank you. Welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Michael Griffin. You can subscribe and hear previous episodes of this show on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. Today, I'm talking to a local author, Christine Langley Mahler, about her new book, A Calendar is a Snakeskin, a collection of essays about Mahler's sense of self, her childhood, her present, and her future. The book comes out October 31st. Here is the rest of our conversation. So now that we've kind of spoken about your journey, interpreting your surroundings and finding solace with reading, the process of what does it mean to interpret what you observe and make a manuscript, how to get it with presses. Let's talk a little bit more about a calendar as a snakeskin. And so I, I wanted to dedicate the rest of the talk to things I read in the book that made me go, mm, dang. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm just going to read a few excerpts from your book, and hopefully I won't say it incorrectly, and then maybe we can just talk about a few things. So you mentioned your first book was called Curing Season, and so this is an excerpt that describes your homesickness. And so in this excerpt you wrote, I wrote a book called Curing Season about the process of trying to cure my homesick heart after it had been cured like the tobacco in North Carolina from a fresh plucked stem into something dried up, a leaf folding inward. (laughs) How did you, (laughs) do you just see like a field of cured tobacco and we're like, that's how I feel inside. Well, you know, (laughs) I saw a field of cured tobacco when I lived there. Actually, there was a park at the edge of our neighborhood where they grew tobacco. And, you know, I came to really think of that a lot as a metaphor. I mean, I I lived in Pitt County, North Carolina, where tobacco uh, had been the main crop for like 300 years. So like it was tobacco country. Mm. So like you kind of couldn't get away (laughs) from it. And so, you know, the metaphor kind of gave itself to me, if you will. And but but, you know, thinking about the process of curing tobacco. I mean, it's you, you take you pluck a leaf and then and then it will you hang it upside down. It dries and you put smoke in there actually to help cure it and give it the flavoring and the seasoning. <laughs> really? Get, yeah, like it, it's it's smoked to help it dry. It has to like, be smoked to be able to be smoked. I know, right? Whoa. <laughs> and then you take <laughs> okay. and, and, well, and, that, and so then the the sheaves are hung up, and then there's like auction. There were auction houses like downtown where they would hang them. And you could just smell the to, you know fresh drying tobacco. Actually, smells so good. <laughs> it huh. smells amazing. It smells nothing like cigarettes. Huh. So so I mean, just tobacco was very present in the time when I lived there. And so when I thought about it as a, you know, how could I describe it as a metaphor? It, I was so homesick for when I had lived in Oregon because that was really where I had considered home. I mean, I was 10 when we left. And so that was really the primary place I remembered as home. And so thinking about what had kind of happened to my heart, yeah, it did, it kind of just like folded Mm. inward and it dried up and you could have crumpled it at the end of those four years. Another section that I really thought was compelling was about tree stumps and it's the following if those trees had been left to grow their lives in nearby mountains they would have only lasted 80 years perhaps 100 
But by stopping them in their prime to be repurposed, those trees live forever, preserved in the dry air while all that is familiar evaporates. Whew. That reminds me of that book, The Giving Tree, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. As a parent, don't even start me on that one. <laughs> I just remember, like, when I was five, like, being like, wasn't that guy kind of a jerk? Yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, it's actually a really terrible metaphor, The Giving Tree, where it's like it gives and gives and gives until it dies. Mm. And then you're supposed to feel like, I mean, which is, as a, as a parent, you feel differently about that as a kid. As a kid, you're like, oh, isn't that amazing? My parent would do anything for me, even kill themselves because I wanted it. It's like, that's not really Mm. the metaphor. We should be providing for our kids. We should be modeling self-care. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I started the tangent. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, the the idea of, um, yeah, that that I was describing of trees where, Yes, if they if they lived out their lives, it would have been a beautiful life out in the mountains, you know, living living your eighty to a hundred years. But by instead of by you know cutting them down, they're cut down where in the in the, at the age when they are, and they get built into well in in the southwest they were they were you know built into kivas and um, cliff dwellings and all of the adobe structures uh, to use uh, they were used as roofs, and they because the Southwest is so dry, they would still be there, you know, a couple centuries later. And so that idea of you didn't get to live out your life where where you were from, and you didn't get to live a natural life, but you had to then, you, you got to live longer, you get to live essentially forever, mm. but everything you knew disappears. You know, mm. what? which is better? I don't, I don't know. I guess it depends on your perspective. <laughs> mm. Is that how you were feeling interpersonally while writing that? And you saw tree stumps and that was kind of a metaphor to assign to that or? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I was really fascinated by how old, I, I mean, I definitely thought that they were retouched, but, you know, that the National Park Services had like, you know, put in some new trees and, so we could get an idea of what it did look like. And instead realizing those are actually the real old ones. Those Human hands cut those down and put those here, and mm. they're still here all these years later. They've just been left out to the elements. You know, I mean, mm. I know that there are, you know, houses in the U.S. and structures in the U.S. that have been here for that long, but to see something just unprotected and still and still, you know, deteriorating so slowly over time, it just made me think a lot about permanency, mm. I guess, and about what does it mean to be permanent and what does it mean to leave what you know in order to make yourself permanent somewhere else. Right. And if you have autonomy in the process. Right. I had to really fight the urge not to say leaf what you know. (laughs) (laughs) And so when you kind of saw those trees that kind of transgressed time by being uh, uprooted and chopped, I guess, were you able to read the rings on them and see how long they lived before they had eternal life? Well, you know, so many of them had been touched over years by hands. It had been smoothed down. I I could not. Well, and, you know, age kind of chopped, you know, the water over time, smoothed them down so that they're actually pretty soft if you touch them, mm. um, you know, smoothed, smoothed by time. So, no, I couldn't tell how old they were. But when I would um, read the things nearby, you know, that the park services put up, it kind of proved the point that like they, these are the, these ones are the original structures over here. You could look at it and be like, wow, there's that tiny piece of wood still sticking out. Okay. Okay. <laughs> mm. I think just back to conversations about literary devices, I think it's nice to be able to interpret literary devices as a means for expression, as opposed to kind of how they were first seen with us passing or failing, you know, a test or not. And so how do you balance, you know, when is the right time to be explicitly anecdotal with what you see versus using a metaphor or simile to express a sensation? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I really in nonfiction love using metaphor as if it's reality, <laughs> because to a, in, in a sense, the way we experience the world, we're perceiving things and making them into metaphor and metaphoric meaning while while we're seeing them. And so. I, I don't think there really needs to be much of a differentiation mm. between um, b- b- between either of them. I, mm. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if that that's like, oh, actually, we don't need it. No, for sure, for sure. I think 
the idea that there are categorized ways of interpreting reality might not be as linear as it seems. Yeah, that's uh, right. And I think I like playing with time in in nonfiction, too. I mean, obviously, anybody who reads the book will see, like, I, I definitely tend more towards the experimental nonfiction. I mean, I'm including ghosts and experience and ancestors and experiences in here that, you know, kind of stretch beyond the <laughs> the directly possible, I think mm. is the best way to put it. And yet they're, they were real to me and they're real in the way that I was understanding things. I mean, I think that nonfiction is often the, the way we see the world, which is sometimes with our eyes mm. and then sometimes with our hearts. And so when you're writing it to try to be pulling both together and kind of constantly questioning which, which is the more authentic truth, isn't it both? Isn't mm. the, way, the way we perceive something as real as the way that we actually did experience it and what's the how do we toggle between the two then when you're presented with one version of facts and yet here's another version of facts that you also know to be true i to me that tension is where the heart lies and that's what i love mm. trying to get at i think tension often has a connotation that it's something you want to be averse to or it can bring pain but in a lot of areas i think when they're in when there is tension there's nuance and mm -hmm you know, maybe some nuances you should walk towards, even if it mm -hmm. feels a little weird. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, just kind of following the line of reinterpreting how we normally approach certain things. I, I'm an uncle, I'm a nerd, I love puns, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love wordplay, and I usually, it usually has a pretty wacky connotation to me, but here's another portion from your text that has wordplay or puns that seems pretty introspective that I thought was really interesting. I sat in the open backseat trunk of the minivan with the girls, all of us blanketed to stay warm, marveling at an alignment that hadn't been seen for 400 years. Something omen-us or ominous. I don't know which. <laughs> so I just thought that was cool because for those that couldn't distinguish what I was saying. It was omen hyphen us and ominous. And so what was the background to that? Well, I mean, first of all, it was the the, the day that was the great, the great conjunction, which was, um, I think it was December 21st, 2020. Um, I remember driving with my kids down. We were just off 96 in Harrison. <laughs> we were looking out toward uh, the direction toward the La, La Vista Costco, <laughs> looking out at that and seeing, um, it was seeing Jupiter and Saturn. They were in their nearly closest alignment. So they almost looked like they were touching. You could see both planets in the sky. They were really bright. Mm -hmm. It was, it was really pretty cool, but you know, I'm watching that and thinking like, okay, it, it's, it was, it's rare for them to have been that close. I mean, they, they get close most of the, like every, I don't know, 30 years or so, but it was a really unusual alignment that time. And I didn't know yet if it was an omen of something and what that would mean, or if it was ominous instead, you know, what, an, an omen, I think sometimes has a negative connotation. Like we're, mm -hmm. like you're saying, you know, where it sounds like an omen, uh oh, here comes something <laughs> your way. But sometimes an omen might just be, it's a portent of something that is to come. And that's not always negative. Sometimes that's good. That for me, that was growth that was coming and I needed that growth. And, and yet it can also be ominous because you don't really know what the intention will be. And so I kind of, I wanted to have them both in there. I didn't want to commit to one word or the Absolutely. other word because they both, they both existed. Right. And alliteration. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> if you're just joining us, I'm talking with Christine Langley Mahler about her new book, A Calendar is a Snakeskin, which will be available wherever you get books on October 31st. Join the conversation on social media. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on an upcoming episode. And one thing that really resonated within me was just kind of from the jump. I moved to Omaha and I became boring. <laughs> you probably aren't the first nor the last <laughs> uh, to have those remarks. Um, 
Do you think that you became boring because <laughs> Omaha's boring? Uh, <laughs> was that going to happen regardless and you just happened to be here? What's up with that? You know, I mean, I first of all, I don't think Omaha's boring. Uh, I chose to move here because I loved it here at a very unpopular time, by the way. I moved here first in 2004, straight out of hmm. undergrad, a time when nobody was moving to Omaha as a 22-year-old for <laughs> just because they thought the town was cool. But I did, actually. Uh, my then-boyfriend and now-husband and I had been through Omaha and we just it felt good to us I, I I still after all these years I'm not really sure how to explain it it felt different than where we'd both lived I mean I'd lived you know all the places I mentioned all in university towns and then my husband was from uh, the suburbs of Detroit so I mean we had no family here but it just felt it felt good. That being said when we moved here everybody looked at us like do what? <laughs> um, why? And they thought it was so boring. Why would you move to this, you know, I don't know, mm -hmm. middle of middle of the country town? You don't even have a job waiting for you here. Why'd you do it? We couldn't explain. We didn't huh. we didn't think it was boring. Other people did. Hmm. And I think that's kind of what I was getting at with that. I mean, I we we lived here then for two years. We had to move away for two years while my husband went to grad school, but we've been back for the last fifteen. And like this is home to us and it's not boring here at all and I love it. But I also, you know, with time and distance can see how, you know, my friends and our family looked at us like, really, you have a chance to do anything and go anywhere. Why do you want to go to Omaha? And the answer is just because it felt like it was right mm. and it still feels like it's right. I think that you can make anywhere right. It had the the beginnings and the opportunities for us to grow into the people we wanted to be without having people telling us who we were. And I mm. think maybe, um, you know, to be a little bit perverse with being told we thought it was boring, we we're like, oh yeah, well, watch, we're gonna do it anyway. <laughs> now what? What are you gonna say about that? I don't think it's boring. You think it's boring? I don't think it's boring. I think we both have that contradictory nature in us. <laughs> Omaha love born out of spite. Right, exactly. <laughs> I know like a lot of local bookstores and I have friends that are into reading but I don't really know where the writing spots are or where community members can like learn how to have a book that's published where, mm -hmm. so where are y'all at where are some spaces <laughs> in town or stores or parts of town that folks that would be interested both you know not only reading but being able to create their realities mm, that the great question so I, you know, I, I said I finished my dig my undergrad in 2004. Well, I didn't go back to grad school until 2015, and I did it right here at the University of Omaha, oh. <laughs> University of Nebraska at Omaha. Um, I went to the, exactly, throw up the Mavhorns. Yes. Um, and, and I, you know, I started with, there's a graduate certificate in advanced writing, which is not, it, it's a graduate program, but it wasn't, um, it's not getting your MFA. It wasn't even getting your MA. And to me, that was a really approachable way to kind of start being around writers again. I mean, I was doing like, you know, a class a night for like, or, you know, a class a semester for the first couple of semesters, just kind of seeing, checking it out. From that, it I did end up going into the master's program and getting my MA from UNO. But to me, I was so grateful something like that existed here because I wasn't ready to upend my life. I mean, I was you know, a 33-year-old mother of three, like I had a full-time job, it, like I wasn't looking, I, I couldn't turn everything over to study writing, but I wanted to mm. be writing. That That's an academic track. <laughs> um, and I was, I was grateful that it was here. That being said, I mean, there are always readings at bookstores. I mean, you know, you meant the uh, Dundee Book Company is great. The Bookworm is great. Those are two of our like, you know, biggest draws here. Mm. I, th I think for for writers and readers to come and kind of see what else is being published and also who's coming through here. I, they're they're just strong resources. Definitely. Thanks for providing an academic and community mm -hmm. route. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and. And so let's do a smooth transition into the last section from the book. So something that really resonated within me was, I need to grow into something less fanged. I have been transforming my son to let my career aspirations shine. But how have I transformed my heart? Mm. <laughs> mm. Where were you at? What was going on? And you were that profound beauty. Uh, well, you know, I mean, you see, you see enough snakes to start thinking. Okay, okay, tra transformation. Okay, but also, what what's with that? 
I mean, snakes bite. That's why we avoid them. <laughs> we avoid them. They've got venom. Like, okay. You know, and when when you get venom into your bloodstream, it either it changes you or you change it. Either you mm. change it into something less poisonous or it changes you into something carrying that poison one way or another mm. you know you're either going to live or you're going to die but the if when the venom's in <laughs> you change it or you change it mm. or it changes you and so if i you know thinking about how could i transform you know the things i was afraid of the fears that i carried maybe you know the some of the worst parts of myself that i didn't want to look at how can i turn them into something so that i too have less fangs <laughs> when mm. going out into the world yeah because even when we have introspection, it's important to be holistic. Yes, mm -hmm. we can shed and there can be beauty with shedding, but also there are fangs. Mm -hmm. And so how can we shed those? How can we shed those and how can we recognize sometimes we, we're the ones carrying the poison mm. that we need to get out? And we need to not just, you know, sink our fangs into somebody else. But mm. instead, how can you, you know, do, do I think what, what they do with uh, venomous snakes, which is like milking the fangs. So they like, you know, there's that little hollow pocket in their tooth and they'll take that out in order to make anti-venom, which is what they give people if you happen to get. So, I mean, to, just to, to think about how can we remove the the things that we carry in us that we no, we shouldn't be that that are only going to hurt us if we keep them but also are going to hurt others if we give it to them is that your avenue for transforming your heart that would be a great way <laughs> you know i mean transforming one's heart i think is a lifelong process i think for me with this book it was a way of seeing some of the things that i needed to start to transform and all I can hope is that it continues. Mm. Yeah. So speaking of continuing and transforming, where do you, where do you see your future? Do you see yourself um, continuing the one book per year trend? <laughs> do you see yourself um, sticking with memoirs or branching into other forms of literary expression? Well, definitely, I could not. I cannot fathom doing another book a year. It's it's <laughs> a lot of work. These two just happen to come out in the ways they came out a year out a year apart from each other, but. Uh, definitely continuing to write memoir. I've been a nonfiction writer my whole life. I simply cannot write fiction. <laughs> I I can't make it not true. I'm constantly compelled to insert what actually happened. So yes, I'm, I'm working on a third book right now, but that was a long ways away, I think. I need a lot of time mm. with it because it's a lot about home and family and ancestry, and those are very touchy topics. <laughs> and yeah. one, Ones where I certainly don't want to be inhabiting other people's experiences. So I'm very, being very slow and deliberate with it. Absolutely, slow and deliberate. Those are good things to think about when including other people. <laughs> And so where can individuals find the calendar as a snakeskin? So right now it's available at Dundee Book Company. If you order it from there, I will go in and sign it. And I've even got a, uh, like a suite of stickers that <laughs> I'll be providing with that. You can order it from Bookworm. You can order it from unnamed places online, which you know. I mean, basically anywhere. It'll be available on Halloween. And I know that my publisher will be shipping them out. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. And this is great talking. Thank you. I really appreciate being here. Riverside Chats was created by Tom Noblock and is a production of 91.5 KIOS Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Thank you for listening. I'm Michael Griffin.